Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. excited to have Kristen Dombeck on the show today. I hope I pronounced her name correctly. Hey. Kristen is an essayist and a cultural journalist. Her essays have been published in the New York Times Magazine, Harper's Magazine, the London Review of Books, N Plus One, and the Paris Review, and anthologized in Best American Essays and elsewhere. She received a Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award for Nonfiction in 2013, and her latest book, which we'll be discussing today, is The Selfishness of Others. An essay on the fear of narcissism. Really nice to meet you, Kristen. It's good to meet you too. Thank you for having me on your podcast. So I'm really excited to talk to you today about a lot of related topics that kind of all center on this idea of selfishness, but we put lots of labels on these things. So it seems like these days, as you point out, every time someone's that we perceive them as selfish, we put the label narcissism on them. And you kind of refer to this as the new narcissism. Can you tell me a little bit about what this idea of the new narcissism is? Well, I think the new narcissism was a title that a magazine gave to an oh. So I don't know if I, I guess what I'm trying to look at is in the context of the history of the way the word has been used in psychology. And then, of course, you know, even long before the birth of what we know as psychology by as long as goes Ovid, you know, in literature. Like, what does it mean today that this word seems to be like the popular insult for someone who, you know, we want to name as selfish? So I guess we might compare it to 
a religious word, which would might, you know, might be wicked, right? Or, <laughs> or even evil. But now, you know, when I hear my friends, like condemning an ex-boyfriend or something, we'll use the psychological diagnosis instead. And so I just got interested in that. And I got interested in it because I think I've felt that urge myself. And I've, you know, I've felt the fear that there's a coming selfie apocalypse, you know, (laughs) and I want to work against judgment in myself, you know, but I also got interested in it because it's a little bit funny, you know, like that moment when you're at the end of a conversation with someone and you're like, she didn't ask me a single question about myself. (laughs) Right. Yeah. What a narcissist. Yeah. But in that moment, you're stuck in this kind of like self-centeredness too. Right. So there's something circular about the diagnosis that seems like, part of what's funny about being human. <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? Oh, I definitely know what you mean. I mean, I can't tell you how many people, I wrote the cover story for psychology. Now, now I'm like super conscious about coming across as narcissist. I know, right? You know, but I'm just telling a fact. I wrote a cover story for psychology today called How to Spot a Narcissist. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many emails I got from mostly women. Um, so that's another fact. And uh, saying, you know, thank you so much for revealing. Now I know what my ex-husband was. He never paid me as much attention as I felt like I deserved. So I'm like, that's interesting, right? It's like, wow. So there's an interesting interaction going on there where kind of when we feel like we're not getting, you know, the attention, we're like, oh, that person's so selfish. So is there real narcissism? I mean, you know, I know in psychology, there's a clinical term to define it. Do you want to unpack with me today? What are the essential features of narcissism and what aren't? You Um, can do that if you want. Sure, but if you if uh, if I can ask you the question as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, as someone who's you know more trained, my PhD is in English literature, right? So as I read a bit into the history of the way psychologies define that word, I found a lot of sort of contradictions and a lot of changes over time, which of course is going to happen, right? Like that means that people are thinking and disagreeing and developing, but. This concept seems like it it can be very contradictory and kind of a hall of mirrors, even within psychology itself, right? And I think that, you know, I don't know if you know this book, Elizabeth Lundbeck wrote this much longer. The book's called The Americanization of Narcissism. And it's kind of, it's an account of the way that the debate over narcissism is really central to how the subfields of psychology kind of split historically, you know? So like how you define narcissism is kind of uh, becomes part of why groups split. So we have, let's unpack it. So we have the clinical definition, right? Which it seems to me to be a thing. Like this is a deaf personality disorder that is, it seems measurable. It's, you can see it because it, a person who has NPD is doing the same behaviors, right? Without over the course of their adult life without being able to learn or change, yeah? Yeah, so the question is, well, what is a narcissist? And we'll use that word. All these, I'm not a big fan of labels in general. As a kid who was personally labeled a lot as a kid as not being smart as well. You know, so there are these just, the you know, lots of labels we throw around that kind of, the thing with these labels is kind of like, it's a way of dehumanizing someone, right? As uh, creating the whole, especially the label like pejorative labels, like narcissism. It's a way of, well, that's the whole essence of the person. Therefore, they don't have experiences. We kind of like, it's a way of objectifying a person as well. In the clinical literature, in my opinion, the essence of narcissism is entitlement. And I think that we get confused between all these different things that are correlated with entitlement that tend to form the narcissism construct, but by themselves, they're not actually narcissism. So, like I talked about essential features earlier, 
but I've been having a discussion with my colleagues right now because I really firmly believe that we've misappropriated grandiosity. Like uh, every time someone has a grandiose thought, the psychological literature labels them as a narcissist. And you, rightly so in your book, talk about the corporate narcissist, the communal narcissist. And I'm so, you basically took on my establishment and I loved that you <laughs> did that because I completely agree with you. You know, it's, and I've been having this conversation with some narcissism experts in the field, back channel and through email. I really, you know, you look at these, some of these, so for instance, the communal narcissist construct, take that. A lot of those items reflect just someone who has a grand vision about helping the world. I mean, to me, that's just wrong to just call that person a narcissist. Like, don't we want more people in the world who have grandiose images of helping people? Like, is that a horrible, is that like a selfish thing? The question is, it's tricky. Like, where do you parse it out? And it's very tricky, but it turns out scientifically there's a big difference between an item of just grandiosity, like I want to come up with a big idea someday that helps a lot of people versus I want to come up with an idea that is the best, that is the bestest idea. <laughs> I want to be the best at helping others. Right. And so you, yeah, would, you, would you draw the line there? So entitlement would be, and this idea should be magically accomplished without me having to work for it, right? Like, or it yes. should be it should be given to me the image of having done this thing, whereas grandiosity, right? Whereas grandiosity is like, you know, you're maybe you're overly optimistic. You're, <laughs> your idea is it's too That's big great. for a person to, right, to carry out. But that kind of might motivate you to do something good or important in the world. Is that? It's the realism part, right? Yeah. It's really the realism part. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, you bring up something that I noticed as soon as I started telling people that I was working on the topic of narcissism, and I don't know if you've had this experience since, you know, you've worked on it for much, much longer than I did. But so I would tell them, yeah, I'm researching narcissism, and I'm working on this book, The Selfishness of Others. And I noticed that one of the very common reactions I got was that people started getting nervous. And then they would try to use the word narcissist a lot in conversation, <laughs> like, which I think was a way to tell me, you know, I know what the word is, so I'm not one, right? And I think that there's... Uh. I, I think that there's a real guilt around self-focus and maybe the kind of grandiosity that we need to get by in, well, you know. There's yeah, a, or even to flourish. To deal with capitalism, and to, you know, to, to deal with academic competition, maybe, or whatever. Yeah. But why this guilt? It's like we fear being called a narcissist. I do, you know, more than almost anything else, right? And I yeah. love that. Do you see I love that? Do you yes. See yeah. Absolutely. I, do you know what it is? Know what I think it is? Yeah. I think people are scared of not as coming across as inauthentic. Mm -hmm. So there's a deep-seated fear. You know, I think it's related to the um, – oh, what is it where you're scared of being found out? What's it called? There's a phrase. Imposter syndrome. Yes, it's called imposter syndrome. Yeah. I think people are afraid of – you're somehow if you're called – if, if everything you've done in your life is just reduced to, oh, well, you know, that person's actually just a narcissist. That actually, I think, like, kind of connotes the, like all the stuff you did wasn't really worth it, you know, or wasn't real. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember when I was just beginning my dissertation, we had a like writers group in the English department where we talked about everyone's fear of being a fraud, you know, and like yeah. I was, and that was the first moment when I was like, oh wow. Ironically, I guess we we all share this same fear, <laughs> you know. But narcissists don't have that fear. See, this is the interesting thing is that most people have that fear, 
but actually people who are clinical narcissists that you, that show up in therapy and get diagnosed by the DSM or whatever as high entitlement, high all these things, they actually never worry about these things that everyone else is worried about in this world. <laughs> right. Yeah. So maybe the best sign of a true narcissist is yeah. the lack of fear of being called a narcissist. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. There actually is scientific research showing the best item to measure narcissism is just ask someone, are you a narcissist? And if you say yes, then actually you probably are a true, <laughs> a true narcissist as opposed to trying to, you know, being like scared that you are and, you know, like saying, well, I don't think I am, you know, those people aren't the real, you know. Though I think there's an impulse too, and, you know, we're making generalizations without evidence here, but we're just thinking, right? <laughs> but I think there's an impulse to say, you know what? I am a narcissist because there's a bit of a, like, over on our end, on my, you know, on the lay person side, there's a bit of a feeling that I, sometimes that we should measure ourselves according to how mentally healthy we are. And there's some pressure, you know, that I think from the authority that psychology has in our lives, at least I feel it sometimes, you know, I click on the quizzes, the personality <laughs> quizzes, right? To make just like, am I okay? Am I okay? You know, am I healthy? Could I be more mentally healthy? And so saying, yeah, I'm a narcissist is also a way of just saying like, you know what? whatever. I'm not going to be moral, you know, I'm not going to care about this, this kind of moral diagnosis. I mean, the subject was really, it was hard to think about for a while because it does make you self-conscious. I did kind of design the book to make you, as you're reading it, worry, you know, to feel the fear of being called and <laughs> being know. diagnosed or called. This topic is so complicated that, you know, maybe you should just relax. Don't worry about it. Don't judge people so much, <laughs> you know. So I'm really glad you made that point, first of all, like everybody just calm down. But then there's the question about empathy that I wanted yeah. to talk to you about, because, you know, there's this idea that narcissists are empty inside and the rest of us are operating there in a full tank. But that's a quite an assumption, you know, like, I think all of us are kind of just trying to make it through the day. And maybe there's a greater compassion if we kind of have greater, you know, connection and a better common humanity, as opposed to sticking some people in the their dead inside box and those that aren't. It seems so binary, doesn't it? It does. But I mean, do you think that from a cognitive science point of view, that there are people who are done inside? Can you tell no. by looking can you guys tell by looking at brains? Yeah, well you can tell, yes, you can tell by looking at brains whether you're likely to have psych be a psycho not you know, have psychopathic tendencies. And that tends to relate to being emotional bluntness. But even people with emotional bluntness what that means is that they still have emotions. They're not dead inside. They tend to just operate more on uh, basic appetites. So they still will feel, you know, uh, sexual arousal. They're almost like an animal walking around with basic primitive emotions. And that's that they have a, a narrower set of emotions that they operate on on a daily basis. So that's true. And we could operationalize that as being dead inside. But that's actually a very small proportion of the population. Very, very small. Actually, the, the number of, you know, bona fide, you'd be by the hair checklist, get a psychopath diagnosis is a vanishingly small number of the general population. So for everyone else, there actually is, I don't think that idea of dead inside really, I think each of us go throughout our lives at some point feeling dead inside, like when we have existential crisis or when we just have depression. People who have depression feel dead inside, but then when you, they go through help and they often join the human race again. So, you know, like, it's not like a stable thing that's like, oh, you're dead inside. That's it. You're done. You know, there's hope, you know. 
know, um, when I was uh, going through and checking some of my sources at you know, right at the very last sort of night before I turned in the book, I reread Freud's essay on narcissism. And he has this. And the first time I had read it, I was very resistant to it because it was so much about femininity and women and gayness, you know, like, yeah. and so I was like, what are you doing? Obviously, you're just, he's projecting. this isn't, this isn't science, you're just projecting. And then I read it, of course, you know, many more times. And then I read it one last time. And there's this sentence in it that describes exactly what you just said, the way that someone who is feeling sick will withdraw from people and from things. And that, you know, and he describes it in this beautiful way. And I finally really got it. And I was like, I recognize that experience because that's what this last month of writing this book is. Like. <laughs> what a <laughs> great know? analogy. Yeah. Between oh being God. a writer. Yeah. Yeah. Like I hope temporarily, and I do think temporarily I'm recovering now, like a, someone who appears to be self-absorbed and selfish because I'm withdrawn from my loved ones. I'm spending my, you know, and it feels sick and it's over now, but I understood what he was describing. You know, which you also that. described. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Anyone. Yeah. Freud wasn't a total hack. <laughs> no. no, he's kind of a, he's just really thinking in his writing, you know, and, and. Do you know who I prefer better than Freud? And so the, well, I like you, no. but I actually really like someone called Karen Horney. Yes. Uh, yes. And she Gosh. challenged a lot of the feminine ideas that Freud had. But you were asking about. Tucker Max. And in this, I thought when I came across your interview with him online, I found it so fascinating. He clearly someone who is so thoughtful about what he was doing, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Reflective. Almost purposeful. Really smart about other people and how they work, right? Yeah. And, but also the way that you got him to talk in that interview someone who was really changing, you know, who was in process, who was trying to figure out how to deal with the way that this I'm an asshole thing, which was always pretty tongue in cheek, I think, for him from what, you know, from what I can see from reading, like how that, how that was sort of functioning in the world and limiting his life. And, and so it just doesn't strike. I mean, he's the kind, I guess, part of what I was doing in that chapter about him is like saying like he's the kind of guy that gets described so often on the sort of self-help websites that are about you know how to deal with your bad boyfriend and yet he's not the dead inside he doesn't seem dead inside right in the way that you were just saying about that that very small percentage that we fear and so I guess I wondered for you like what does that mean about the way we understand (laughs) empathy I know that's a very big question but clearly you know I mean there's is that, did he just have cold empathy, you know, like he could, he could right. read the people's minds, he could develop a good theory of mind, but didn't care, doesn't have compassion, or I don't know. It seemed like it complicated, that interview complicated a lot of the simpler ideas about we have empathy and our people who are narcissists just don't, they can't, they don't, you know? It's such a great question. You know, that part of Tucker's life where I interviewed him was right on the cusp. You're right, you sent something there. It was right on the cusp before he made a shift to a whole new chapter of his life as a father. <laughs> you know, he's a father now and all these things, um, and a businessman. Uh, so I think that it's a very tricky, this question of empathy is tricky because there are, psychologists have identified various components of empathy. So I don't think empathy is this thing that you either have or you don't as a person. You know, each one of us throughout our day wax and wane in how much 
we're focused on others, how much we're in our own head. That's called being human is constantly going back and forth. There's no, you know, even saints act out of character the majority of their day. I mean, the, the recent research on personality traits shows that these are not stable. These are not actually within person variation is greater than between person variation, which just means throughout the course of your day, let's say you're an introvert, you know, yeah. you'll, there are many moments during your day react extrovert, you know, and what does that mean to be who you are? Who is the real you? You know, I don't think, I think the idea of the self is, is kind of becoming clear that it's an illusion in a lot of ways because there's lots of sides to ourselves and we're constantly having these different sides. So I think that throughout our course of our own day, there are lots of moments where we show zero compassion because like maybe we're working on a math proof or we're intensely writing and, and then our partner comes you know, and says like, hey, do you want to, hey, Kristen, do you want to get some food with me? And you go, shut up, <laughs> you know, because you're, and that's a moment where you've showed zero compassion, well, or empathy. So do we want to say that you're, therefore, oh, I discovered you're not an empathic person, you know, like, no, you've just discovered that she's normal, that she's a human. So the question we're really asking in psychology is, well, do some people on average tend to be a lot less empathic? during the course of their day? That's the real question, not all or none. And I think that, you know, there was a period in, in Tucker's life where in college, which, and he wouldn't be the, like he says, he's, you know, he's like maybe one of the first to write about it so publicly, but I was in a fraternity in college. The point here is that, you know, I think that he's human. I think a lot of people go through periods in their life where they are more immature in their responses and defenses and are more self focused than there are other periods in their lives where there aren't. And I really do believe that these things can wax and wane across our lives. The real question I think that fascinates you and fascinates me is, you know, well, are there some people, very small minority, but are there people who truly, truly throughout their whole life, it's kind of like that chip is gone and they can never activate that chip ever. And I don't know the answer to that question other than there does seem to be some people who because of a combination of genetics and horrible, horrible maltreatment in childhood, like abuse at a very severe level, they at one point of their life, almost all of them have been born with that chip. But what has happened is it has become so shut off that they almost don't even know how to access that brain region anymore. The, you know, so, and that's a fascinating question because, I mean, you tend to find that if you just find the abuse or you just find just the genes, you don't find that. But when you find the storm, this perfect storm of someone with the, the anti genes that increase the probability they'll have antisocial traits and horrible maltreatment and environmental conditions that allow them to act to um, enact their dark desires, then you do you do tend to find, you know, what approximates evil, I would say. But I would say that's a very small we're talking definitely less than one percent of the right. population. Does that all make sense what I said? It does yeah. make sense. I mean, the what, my hunch then is that like if you were in a relationship with that sort of person, right? Whether it's a parent, a boss, you know, a, a boyfriend or girlfriend, husband or wife, it is probably not that hard to figure it out, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. So then my interest is in the people who if we take the kind of trait model of, you know, like that there's a kind of continuum, uh, the people who might perform those patterns. Patterns. That's right. That's what they are. And do things that, you know, this, do the sort of things about which you and I would say, I would never do that, right? I would never. <laughs> so then there's a sort of a, 
I don't know if it's a philosophical question or a, a or what, but for me the question is: Is it better in all the senses of better, better for the world, better for my relationship, better for my well-being, better for that person's well-being and growth? Right? If I treat them from a kind of diagnostic standpoint, like looking for the traits and trying to say you're this, and therefore I'm going to treat you as different than me, or do I have a kind of do I kind of try to unlabel them, right? Uh, not label them, well, see what are you doing, right? That's my question and that's a life question, but also a question for how we, whether or not, you know, we should maybe push against the impulse to diagnose for the people that are, you, do you know what I'm saying? I like, do know what you're saying. And I think it's a profound question uh, with a lot of, I mean, with a lot of importance for people's lives. So let me tell you how I think about this. I think first of all it is the healthiest thing for your well-being is to, Get off the label train, get off that train and take responsibility for your life. Take responsibility for your actions. You actually have a lot, not you particularly, Chris, but all of us have a lot more power to control our lives than we think we realize we do. You know, my boss here at Penn, Martin Seligman, coined the whole idea of learned helplessness, right? Where we tend to get into a situation where, and I think it's very easy for a lot of people in abusive relationships to get learned helplessness. What they don't realize is that they actually can make concrete to set boundaries. There are a lot of things that we can do, you know, where at the same time we can still accept the person. So I actually think that, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of acceptance, self-acceptance, but also other acceptance. These are patterns, deeply ingrained patterns of behavior in your partner or a close friend or whatever it is that is in your life that you can't change. You shouldn't be in the business of trying to change. So you either make the decision to take responsibility for your life and get out and like say, you know what, I don't want to be this person's friend anymore. You know, like, and you say, and you, and you, you have an assertive conversation with this person. You say, you know, look, I just, I don't think this is working as a friendship or as a relationship and you get out or you make the decision you know what? That's that person's character. And I accept that person's character, both the good and the bad. I love when we, I love how zany he is or she is and how unconstrained they are. And that's awesome. I can't stand when they get angry at me for things they don't do, but I'll take responsibility for that. And when they do that, I'll say back, I'll say, you know what? That wasn't my fault. You know, like, just so you know, that wasn't my fault. And I'm not going to deal with you when you're like that. And I'm going to go in the other room now. And you kind of take that responsibility for yourself in that situation. Now, I don't want to be an apologist. Of course, you know, a lot of people hearing this right now will say, well, are you advocating, you know, just like if you're an abusive relationship, that's totally not what I'm saying. But because I think that a lot of times it can be hard, especially if someone's physically abusive, right? But I'm not really talking so much about that. I'm saying, you know, I think we can accept others and still take responsibility. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Mm. I agree with you. And I also am, I mean, I was so worried in writing this book. I think I felt like I should begin every paragraph with, you know, I'm not talking about (laughs) if you're in an abusive relationship. Yeah, we have to say that because... Find a nuanced situation, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think it does any justice to people who are in abusive relationships for this word or this label to be just applied so generally, right? Yeah. yeah. We should distinguish between that and sort of the kinds of the dynamic of everyday selfishness that we all go through in relationships, right? And of um, choosing again and again to turn towards someone and to try harder to understand them rather than turning away, right? And do you know what, Kristen? You're absolutely right. I think that values come into play with this. Some people might actually be okay 
you know, there are jerks in this world, you know, that's what we tend to call narcissists. But like, it's not from a moral standpoint, like if you're okay with being with someone who's a jerk, that's your own value. And that's your decision. You know, it's like, it's like, you know what I'm with? A jerk, like, but they're also an amazing artist, and they're also great in bed, and they're, and you list all these things that outweigh them being a jerk. Then who are we as a society to judge? Oh, she's staying in that relationship with that jerk, or he's in that. But it's like it's no one's business in a way, unless that person is genuinely like you know not happy, and yeah. and it's against their value system. And I think you need to know yourself. Like, if you have a value system that I don't want to date jerks. And you are being a jerk, then take responsibility for your life and say that's this is against my value system. You know what I mean? But if it's not against your value, do you know what I mean? Like it's not. Who am I to judge? What? But in, in that situation, if your value system is different than what you're actually doing, you're the one who's the fraud and the fake, right? <laughs> I mean, or you might do some work on that instead. And yeah. I think that, like, I wouldn't say I wouldn't go that far, but yeah, I, I know. Would, but I, just in, in like in terms of the language of the narcissist story, yeah. right? Oh, right. Yeah, we call that person who's a jerk also a fake. Which is really interesting to me. Someone who's performing a self more than other people do, right? And yeah. We're also all, most of us are insecure, deeply insecure humans. It's it's yeah. part of being human. Yeah, that you wrote about these websites where they get together and they spend all day on these chats, chatting with each other about how horrible the person is without doing something about it. Now, I don't want to, again, you know, I feel like I have to keep prefacing this with like, yeah. I don't want to shame the person. Yeah, but I guess I want to empower people to realize that there is something they can do about it that is more productive than just labeling another person. And it, do you know what I mean? I do. It's a tough. I mean, it's a tough subject. It's so like, tough. In it. And there's one study, and I I don't. It would take me a second to find the source, but there was one study that I read that really gave me pause. <laughs> and it was maybe you'll know what it was. It was a study about the way that people who are I think score high on the MPI respond to kindness and that they respond to kindness by becoming more manipulative. Right. And that gave me pause because they see kindness as an opportunity for exploitation. Right. That's super interesting. I haven't come across it. So this is the thing this would like, I think destroy my entire argument, but if that's true, right. If that were true, if that's replicable, if that's, you know, If that were true, that in being kind and understanding, I mean, I guess this is just the old Kohut Kernberg debate, right? But if it were true that in being kind and understanding, empathetic towards someone who's trying to manipulate me, I'm actually making their problem worse and creating more, you know, possibly paving a way for whatever, for um, bad things to happen in the world. That's challenging. Like, this is a difficult question, is what I'm saying. It's very difficult. Is there a point? What is the point at which you write someone off. So I don't know. I mean, in the book, I tried to just wrestle with it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I guess I become more concerned with this way that, and I, I don't blame this on psychology. I mean, how could you blame something on psychology? <laughs> you are a little harsh on psychologists in one chapter. <laughs> in which one? <laughs> there, I remember there's one line where I was like, whoa, touche. You said, you know, and those who, who, uh, need this the most become psychologists uh, there's something that's not me that's alice miller she's a psychologist <laughs> she's, she's author a, of the drama the gifted child yeah, yeah. okay so yeah. you didn't say that no but i did kind of you, you know insinuated it into it in a, at a crucial it's moment tr- it's probably true though but the thing is it's probably true <laughs> well but then i mean what she's saying i think is that people who have had maybe cold or cruel parents 
become highly sensitive to figuring out what other people are doing. She tries not to use the word narcissist. She uses it rarely, right? And that what else would motivate someone to go into the profession of psychology, but a desire to understand, you know, how people work, because maybe it's something you, I don't know, you couldn't, you know, control. You're interested in how the, how people work, how the performance of self happens and so on. I think what I was trying, I didn't feel like I was like condemning psychology. I was more trying to point out how the methods of different fields really influence the claims that they make, yeah. right? I thought it so, was a great point. I mean, yeah. and I think I don't mean that that's bad. Like right. we need all different kinds of approaches, right? Yeah. To yeah. how you know, say other selves, how selves, how selves work, and so on. But yeah. and I think there's value in. I mean, I find great value in say social psychology's attempt to get out of the subjective point of view and try to see things across great numbers of people. I think that's important. I think that it's just that the way in this moment where on the internet, where I start translating it really quickly (laughs) and then turn it into kind of a moral diagnosis of a whole culture that I'm somehow outside of. I think that moment is very interesting, right? Because it's like, I'm maybe responding to the authority that psychology has in my life by trying to then become a kind of psychologist myself, you know, and mm. hold myself above the people I'm around. And it's, I guess it's, which brings me to like my, another question I have for you, which is like, what's it like to try to translate this work, which you do in, you know, in labs in with the computer for, so you know, crunching numbers or in therapy rooms to people who are reading you know, a 30-second Huffington Post art, you know, yeah. <laughs> like uh, article about how to, you know, the listicle thing that you make a gentle fun of in one of your pieces, right? Of how, yeah. to, how do you diagnose your boyfriend in, in five seconds? Yeah. Like, do you find yourself trying to both work within that and against that as someone who's speaks and writes publicly about the work of psychology? Oh, absolutely. I'm learning as a science writer and I've, I think I'm maturing, <laughs> if I may say so myself. I look at some of my older writings about narcissism and I, even the article how to spot a narcissist and I don't, it doesn't feel good to me anymore to, with these labels. I'm more on like your side these days about, and I'm not just saying that to be agreeable. It really has been a, a shift in my thinking about this stuff to the complexities of being human. And I wrestled with that a lot when I wrote my recent book, Wired to Create, where I talk about how creative people tend to take the dualities in them that most of us, all of us have these contradictions. But creative people are really good at reconciling those contradictions and integrating it. And even just like the whole point of the creative process for them is to make meaning out of themselves and the contradictions in others. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized that, yeah, gosh, it's really hard to write about this stuff because I want to now not use the word narcissism because I don't want to label people, but I want to describe a set of characteristics that everyone, it's so easy. It's so easy to just slip into this language. And to be part of it, like you said, but I want to be out of it as well in a nuanced way. And it, it, it is hard. It's really hard because how do you describe, you know, tendencies towards these traits, but give it a neutral label of some sort in a way that people will understand is, gosh, that's hard to do. If you, if you have an idea on how to, how to write about that in that way, let me know. The thing that will go unnamed, you know, it's hard. It's a question similar to the question that. I have as a writer, and we all have, but just how also how do we write for the internet? Yeah. Right? About stuff that's very, very complicated, but people want to read very quickly. But I mean, I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. It's a, that's the, exactly the problem you should be working from, right? That's, that should be the problem. 
Yeah, absolutely. Can I bring back an idea about empathy for a second? So Paul Bloom has made an argument recently about why empathy is uh, very myopic, very narrow, and how we'd all be better off without empathy. <laughs> and he has a book coming out, The Case Against Empathy. And The Case Against Empathy is not a case for narcissism, which is interesting. That's not the opposite flip side of it. He views the flip side of it, compassion. And compassion is different than empathy. There is emerging brain research showing that when we automatically feel the pain of others, we are more likely to have emotional burnout. You know, like a lot of nurses, doctors want to reduce their empathy. But compassion is different. It's more of a feeling of love and warmth towards a person who's suffering without feeling their suffering. So it does complicate the picture a bunch because you can't just say just because someone's low empathy, they're a narcissist. You know, like that's way too simplistic. Someone might take a more rational approach to things where they don't want to be, they want to like actually not be biased by how someone's feeling in the moment to kind of get a bigger picture view of what might be going on to help the person truly. Because there are moments when having empathy can get in the way of actually giving the person what they actually need. Absolutely. So I just want to put that wrench in things because it's really tricky. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's, I write a little bit in the book and I, I started thinking about how that exact problem is complicated by our desire to be seen as decent and good and empathetic, right? So yeah. if, we're, if we're just looking for the moments when we can feel empathy because that makes us feel good about ourselves, we might actually, you know, and it's a complicated argument, but we might actually be less likely to understand what someone else is doing, right? Um, it's and such that's, a good point. Yeah, it's a really profound, like, that's very different. So I guess that brings, I mean, that brings me back to the question of then why is the, the narcissist our favorite insult and our favorite name for our whole culture right now? And it seems like it's, there's something very, to me, very profound going on in like, this moment in history where maybe because of the internet, maybe because of like, how self-reflective we are, because of your discipline. <laughs> <laughs> we're all you know evaluating ourselves and our, our all, it's our fault <laughs> i don't have a like i'm not i don't feel helpless about psychology i take responsibility myself yeah, yeah for good my, <laughs> for my, my problems and my, but we are partly at fault because we're creating the constructs and tests yeah. yeah but like what you know in this moment in history when you know right now we can see each other's faces but if we were just messaging on facebook we'd ha be having to decide how to whether to trust each other, you know, whether to, like I did with you, right? When you messaged me, I was like, oh, should I trust this guy? Yeah. Seems nice. He could be faking, right? I don't have the advantage of whatever, mirror neurons or whatever it is. I don't have some of the major ways in which we understand and interpret each other. Others actions. I can't see your eyes, so I can't read your mind in the eyes, <laughs> right? <laughs> but like, you know, no, we're facing we're messaging, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and so I think we're more and more conscious of um, both how performed selves always are, how much we depend on that mirroring and that physical presence to understand each other. And then, you know, we're trying to understand, comprehend so many more people at such a greater rate than we used to historically, right? And here I'm just speculating, you know, but this is my hunch about like why in this moment, we might feel insecure about our ability both to decide whether or not to trust other people and ourselves because we have to more explicitly perform ourselves every day. 
that, that takes us to the big question that you brought up about the whether the self is you know even a thing and whether it's sort of dissolving in this moment and like what is this you know this stuff gets very deep and, and I just you know I take a very Maslow approach to a lot of this stuff and I think that we should rec and I, this is so consistent with your own ideas in your book but we should really just acknowledge that esteem needs are a basic need of humans and if we're not getting those needs met like we can turn into jerks all of us can have the potential for that and when we're in a relationship we need to recognize that if we're getting upset you know that our esteem needs aren't being met there's a good chance the other person is being upset too that their esteem needs aren't being met and so you have two people who think each other are narcissists when both people are just not getting a basic fundamental human need satisfied to the level at which they feel like they need it. So that's just my thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. Let's yeah. trust each other and acknowledge we have these needs. And, and if someone's needs for that are so great, then maybe we might want to distance ourselves a little bit because that, that could happen. But I think it's okay to lead with trust. I, I don't know. Just my opinion. Yeah. But you know, in the, I don't know if you read comment sections on online, but you know, it's like you've got that problem multiplied just exponentially where people are just like distrusting each other right away, right? And assuming that the position that the other's coming from is got to be a selfish one, therefore it can be just condemned and then these fights pile up, you know? You know, but the truth is that that all of our decisions are selfish ones by mm -hmm. definition because we're the only frame of reference we have, whether we realize it or like it or not, you know, all of our decisions are selfishly motivated, even pro-social decisions. And that's just a fact. The word selfish doesn't have to be a bad thing. You know, if I'm sitting alone watching a beautiful sunset and no one else is with me to watch it, am I being selfish? Do you know, it's like, I think what we really mean is, you know, this person is not considering the needs of another person to the extent to which it's it's hurting someone, and that's a different territory. That's I think there's different categories of selfishness, but I don't think just selfishness in itself. All it means is that it's coming from yourself, <laughs> and for all of us, you know, everything is selfish. Really, when we consider the needs of other people, you know, I guess that is selfless, but it's not a hundred percent selfless because evolution evolved us a system that where we get a reward, intrinsic reward value for helping others as well. So. Mm -hmm. It's almost impossible to completely disentangle that. But wow, we're getting really deep here a second. So. <laughs> we are. We yeah. are. Yeah. You know, I say that and it sounds skeptical. I'm actually a positive psychologist. I know. So um, I don't say that in a skeptical way. I think that – I guess I want to make a point that we throw around that word selfishness. And I think this does relate to the essence of your book. We throw that around in a way that it, like it's always a bad thing if we're not considering the needs of another person. But – I think that it's it's important to recognize that we all have this tendency to be selfish because we are the only frame of reference we have. And just by the nature of being self-absorbed or being like wanting to be happy for yourself is not by itself, you know, a horrible thing. Yeah, I would put it maybe because you're still, it's like we can't get away from this word selfish, right? But we're both, right. you know, right. <laughs> but like when you get really get down into it, that word itself assumes a this like difference between self and other that doesn't right. it doesn't hold up in many philosophical traditions religious traditions and also you know in fact in like neuroscience in some ways right like we are living through imitation of others like we learn to be ourselves by imitating others and we have i guess i would say this just in a more poetic like way like we in addition to what you're saying like i would say i also am always amazed by how 
people are always stretching to get out of that spot where they're stuck at the center of the world. That's they're right. always, right? They're always longing to understand others, to not be trapped there in only our own perspective, you know, to like, do you know what I mean? Like oh gosh, I totally know what you mean. I mean, and that's what, you know, that's what people in your, I mean, we, the fact that we study each other, right? That we want to understand how everyone else works. We want to understand the yeah. difference. Well, oh, that's that's the great value of humility is recognizing what you've recognized. That's wisdom. You recognize that all of us are have this self selfish viewpoint of the world, and you know these these people that become Buddhist monks, they're not all becoming Buddhist monks or because they're all narcissists and they want to be trans they want to be transformed. They're becoming Buddhist monks because they're human and they rec and they have the wisdom to recognize that there's a greater perspective that no single person has a perspective on the world that's the truth or reality. So, so yeah, you make a lot of really good points in your book along those lines. And I think maybe like, I mean, I, I do think that we, we, whoever the we is, that there's an overuse of narcissism, this word as a diagnosis um, that has a moral implication and as a kind of apocalyptic story about the future. Right. Yes. I do think that's overused, but I also think that like, it's good that we see like the thing that we're naming as like evil or harmful in that word is evil and harmful. It is what, right. It's, mm -hmm. um, I just want it to be stretched a little bigger than any given individual, you know? So I've been thinking since I got done with the book about the ways in which like say whiteness is a kind of, can be a kind of narcissism, right? The inability to see outside of the a position of privilege in a certain situation, right? Mm, like yeah. inability to to see except for from the position that you're in in the world, but then like writ large over history, right? Do you know what I mean? And so like yeah. this of entitlement and kind of blindness to others is something that we see and it is what causes harm. But part of why it causes harm is because it maintains a myth. Uh-oh, I don't want to get too deep and crazy. But it makes the, you know, it maintains this, the myth of that we're separate, right? Yeah, so maybe one of the most uplifting aspects of your book is is that if we want to have true empathy, we need to be a little bit more lenient on our labels and recognize we're all just trying to get by. <laughs> we're all just trying to get through the day in a lot of ways. And yeah, is there anything else you wanted to add to this interview? Yeah, my head is kind of spinning with all the topics Me that too. we have. So, um, but it's very cool to talk to you. Thank really, you. Really cool to talk to you too. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can visit thepsychologypodcast.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. 
With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information live nation presents concert week now through may 14th get 25 dollars tickets to over 5,000 shows that's up to 75 percent off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 savage alanis morissette cage the elephant celeste barber dirk spentley fade hootie and the blowfish janet jackson kids bop kids megan trainer bissell puma sarah mclaughlin get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just 25 dollars until now through may 14th Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.